Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 31. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered that the evil, discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites, as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites." Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. 
This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Um, And I'm going to just ask the question really quick here. Is Keith and Kelsey Peterson here? Okay. Stephen and Caitlin Abdo? Dan and Susan Kaufman? Okay. The reason I did that is because we have new members being added to the church. John Wesson, by chance? Okay. They're all in the second service, so that means I don't have to do that, and I got more time to preach. That's all I wanted to know. Okay? Well, welcome. Um, We have been, uh, if you're just joining us, we've been studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah for over a year, and we are concluding that study today. Uh, Next week, we are beginning a 13-week study in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. We are calling this series Origins because it's going to be an in-depth study on our beginning. Where did everything come from? How did humans come to be so unique in all of creation? What are human beings here for? What, are our, what is our purpose? Now you might ask, why spend three months studying the first three chapters of the Bible? Well, I believe that a large portion of the confusion, frustration, and brokenness that we are experiencing in our culture today is a result of not knowing where we come from. We don't know what we were created to do, and we don't know how God has uniquely designed us to live as his image bearers in his world. So we are going to spend 12 weeks rediscovering the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation. We're going to look at the origins of the human race and the divine design that God has imprinted on our human bodies. We're going to study the nature of identity and gender and marriage and sexuality. We're going to look at masculinity and femininity from a Christian worldview. We're going to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman made in the image of God? We're going to ask and answer, how is a godly home intended to function? Listen, if you want to know the best way to live your life, one of the best ways to do that is go back to the origin and ask those questions. Why was I created? What was I created for? You go back and you read the instruction manual and that will help you come to understand what you were designed to do. Now, any men in here ever try to hammer something with the back of a screwdriver? Oh, come on, you know, yeah, I know. I know I have. I have been a carpenter, but I, you know, when the only tool you got is the screwdriver in your hand, you try to make it work, right? Now, we know we might be able to get it done, but it's not, we're not going to function. It's not, that's not how a screwdriver is meant to function, right? A screwdriver is meant to turn a screw. And, if, and if, I think much of the confusion that we're experiencing in our culture today is we don't know what we're for, what we were designed to do, and therefore we're trying to figure it out on our own, and we're reaping the consequences of that. Many of us have been living lives contrary to our design, and we are experiencing a lot of turmoil because of it. God wants us to live lives that are in line with our design, and that is what a truly flourishing life looks like, living the way God made us to live. So this study begins next week. Then, after Easter, we're going to begin another year-long study, this one in the Gospel of John. Now, okay, okay. Listen, it's been a long year, all right? We've been a whole year in the Old Testament. We've been Ezra and Nehemiah. God's done a lot of good things. But we are about to get to spend a whole nother year with Jesus. So I think it's going to be a great uh, sermon series, especially for those who are searching and want to know a little bit more about Jesus, who he was, what he did uh, in his ministry 2,000 years ago. So that's where we are headed in 2023 and 2024. But today we get to finish our study in the book of Nehemiah. And so let me pray for us and we can jump right in. Father God, we thank you for all of the, just the work of your grace that we've experienced already in this gathering. Thank you for the deep and meaningful worship. We are reminded that this is your Father's world, that you are in control of it, that you are bringing it to its destined end in the new heavens and the new earth. And we are also just thankful that you give us your word. And your word is meant to instruct us in all things and teach us who you are and what you've done and what you are doing in our world. And so now I ask that you would settle our hearts, settle our minds, let us focus on your word, and would you instruct us, would you teach us? Father God, I confess that I am just a man, and so I need your leadership, I need you to speak, I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it's my desire that 
Your people don't hear my opinions this morning, but they hear directly from you. And so would you teach us what you want us to teach us from this last chapter of the book of Nehemiah? And would you bring glory to yourself and joy to each and every heart in this room? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, for those of us who, you know, we, we grew up uh, on nursery stories, right? We grew up on some uh, simple bedtime stories, and we really like our stories simple, like things were good, things go bad, things get better, and happily, they lived happily ever after, right? Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are going to end in a frustrating way. Why is that the case? Because Ezra, Nehemiah are not writing a fairy tale. They aren't crafting a story to teach a simple moral lesson. They are writing down actual historical events. And in this life, in this human life, human stories never really end with a, and they lived happily ever after. Because the sun will rise the next day, and with the sun come the weeds and come the problems and come the frustrations. We know by experience that once you push through one difficulty, another one will arise shortly. Things decay. Relationships are like cars. If you don't put in the constant work to maintain them, they will eventually break down. This is why we need pastors and counselors and MC leaders and parents and why human civilization only works with competent, steadfast leaders diligently working to promote the good in society, to punish evildoers, and to build the structures needed for a flourishing community. Ezra and Nehemiah were such leaders. If you remember, Ezra was the religious leader called by God to return out of Persian captivity to rebuild the temple and restore the right worship of God. After the, the right worship of God was restored, then God calls Nehemiah as a civic leader to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. These two leaders worked hand in hand, Ezra reforming the worshiping community and Nehemiah reforming the civic community through implementing just laws and rebuilding the wall and doing all kinds of things like that. Ezra would read and teach from the scriptures and then Nehemiah would work out the practical implications from the word of God for the city. So Nehemiah would hear the reading of the word of God and then he would go seek to apply the word of God to his sphere of authority as a civic leader. So Nehemiah led the project to rebuild the wall around the city, creating a safe place to worship God, safe place to raise a family, and a safe place to operate a business. God is concerned about all of these things. Then he orchestrated a citywide event where all the people came together and called for Ezra to come out and read from the book. Do you remember this? this is a great scene in the, in, the, in the narrative where they're like, bring us Ezra and tell him to bring the book. We want to hear from the word of God. As the people hear from God's word being read and taught to them, they hear how good and gracious he has been to their forefathers and how their forefathers had rejected him to do their own thing. This realization brought deep contrition and repentance to God's people. They repented for their sins and they repented for their father's sins. They confessed their sins, turned from them, and then they renewed their covenant with God together. Now, if you remember, they promised to do a few things in that covenant renewal ceremony. They promised to obey the words of God. They promised not to intermarry with the pagans and let their children intermarry with the pagans. They promised to keep the Sabbath day holy and not work on it. And then they promised to pay their tithes and not neglect the house of God, the temple. This led to a great celebration where all the people dedicated all of their work to God. That was what we saw last week. We had horns blowing and choirs singing and it was just an amazing, worshipful experience that the whole city took notice and people even outside of Jerusalem were aware of something big is going on in the city. It was a joyous celebration. Well, it seems from our text today that Nehemiah spent about 12 years in Jerusalem as its active governor overseeing all things before he apparently realized, you know what, I think things are going pretty well here. I'm going to go back to Babylon. I'm going to go back to the king of Persia. I'm going to go be his cupbearer again. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of no longer needed here. And what's the saying? When the cat's away, the mice will play. 
As Nehemiah is away, the people once again begin to make some really poor decisions. And so that's where we're at this morning. If you want to open up our Bibles to Nehemiah 13, verse 4, we're going to work our way through it slowly but surely. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Verse 6, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib, Eliashib had done for Tobiah. All right, do we remember who Tobiah was? Right? He's the guy that we couldn't stand in the beginning of the story. Remember? He's the guy we wanted to, you know, poke his eyes out, right? He never stopped aggravating God's people and trying to stop the work of rebuilding that was being done in the city. He was one of Nehemiah's most famous or infamous detractors. He was one of the guys who was constantly trying to sabotage Nehemiah's work and shipwreck the work of reformation that was going on in the city. So what we see here is while Nehemiah is away back with the king of Syria, look at this. Tobiah has not stopped his work of deformation or his work of deconstructing. He wants to tear down what God is trying to build. And now it looks like at the very end of the book, he finally got his foot in the door. He finally found his way in. And here, it's kind of complicated, but here's what's going on. Tobiah was related to one of the priests. And Eliashib, that priest, was over the chambers where they kept many of the sacred things meant to be used in the right worship of God. All the things that had been dedicated to God and were not meant for unholy use, but were meant for sacred use. They were all stored here in a special way. It was kind of like a sacred storehouse where they kept all the sacred utensils that they would use in the worship of God. And what does Eliashib do? He betrays his sacred calling. Apparently, he, he's not, he's not uh, fearful of any godly retribution. Nehemiah's out of the way, and things have probably gotten a little soft around here, a little soft around the edges. Nobody's really checking up on me anymore. So what does Eli Eliashib do? He betrays his sacred, sacred calling, and he lets his relative, Tobiah, move himself into the sacred place in the temple. Now, this is just next level here, right? He's got... He's related to the temple, and he's like, listen, I, I know there's all this holy stuff in that room. That's a lot of square footage, though. Do you really need that? Bro, you know, I'm, things have been getting hard for me, right? The market's crashed. I really need a place to stay. Can we move some of that stuff of God out of there and let me stay in there? And Eliashib, as a weak man, right, as a soft leader, says, okay, sure. Doesn't sound too bad. And he allows him to move in. Right? And so now Nehemiah's gone for some unnamed amount of time. We don't know how long. And he comes back and to see things, how things are faring. Now, as we watch Nehemiah, I just want to just give this little caveat and reminder. Cave Nehemiah is a governor. Okay? He is a civic ruler. Right? So he is in the realm of the state. He is not a pastor or a priest or in the realm of the religious community necessarily. And you need to know that because we're going to see some behavior that might shock us. And this isn't how a pastor acts, okay? Not that a pastor might be tempted to act in such a way, but a pastor can't act this way. But a governor and a ruler can act in this way. And I will show you that uh, really quickly. So let's look at verse 7. <clears throat> and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done. So right now we see this is evil. This is not just an oops or a mistake. This is something evil preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Step one, he walks in, he goes, what? Are you kidding me? And he doesn't call for any other authority. He is the authority entrusted by the, by the king. So he comes in and he grabs the furniture and starts throwing it out in the street. 
Now, I like this picture here, okay? This is a man who the zeal of the house of the Lord consumed him. We will see a similar picture with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he enters the temple and they have turned the temple into a place for money changers to hang out and take advantage of the poor. Jesus flips the table and drives them out with a whip of cords, right? So this is, an, this is an, a necessary response to degrading the house of God. Jesus, when he saw something similar, didn't sit back and pray about things. He rushed into the temple and drove those wicked rulers out of it. Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. So the first thing Nehemiah does is ultimately he cleanses the temple. Something Jesus, one of Jesus' first things, first and last, many commentators say, first and last things he did in his ministry was to cleanse the temple. Again, Judgment begins at the house of God. And then, the rest of this chapter is both a lesson on the, necess on the necessity of strong biblical leadership and also the disappointments of being a transformational leader. We learn that without Nehemiah providing that strong biblical leadership, the city began to decline once again. This shows us that leadership is necessary for renewal. Any type of political understanding of the world that thinks that human beings just left to themselves will naturally be peaceful and govern themselves appropriately, it always leads to anarchy and it is not biblical at all. We need just rulers. We need righteous pastors. We need godly leaders. We need godly parents. But this also shows us just how disappointing being a leader often is. How, how disappointing being a parent often is. You step away for five minutes, right? I left the room for five minutes. How did this happen? All right? And what you mean by that is you did not come back and find order, right? It goes from order to chaos. Very rarely does it go from chaos to order, right? Without instruction and leadership. So the rest of the chapter reads like the antithesis of chapter 10. Do you remember chapter 10? Chapter 10 was the covenant renewal ceremony. We come before God, we promise to do this, we promise to do this, we promise to do this. This is the antithesis to that. In chapter 10, the last, and it kind of goes in reverse order too, it's very interesting. Chapter 10, the last thing they promised to do in chapter 10 verse 39 was this. We will not neglect the house of our God. While Nehemiah was gone, what was the first thing that happened? The house of God was neglected. They broke their covenant once again. So Nehemiah once again brings confrontation to the fickle leadership and commands them to obey, to obey God and stay true to the covenant obligation. So let's look at verse 10. What, what happens here? Verse 10, or no, verse 9. We're then I gave orders... And they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So the first thing he does, he comes back, he finds the temple being violated, he throws out all the furniture, he cleanses it, he purifies it, he sanctifies it, devotes it back to God, and brings back all the appropriate things. Okay, so now look at the next thing he does. Verse 10, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Now, what, what's he talking about here? The second thing the people promised to do was what? To pay their tithes and to provide for the right worship of God in the temple. Well, guess what the second thing they broke was? The second thing they com committed to doing, right? They stopped paying tithes. They stopped taking care of the city or of the temple. Keep reading. Uh, verse 11. So I confronted the officials. Nehemiah back in town. So I confronted the officials, right? There's a new sheriff in town. Nehemiah's back. I guess we better obey the law again. Here we go. Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Can I just say, this is, you know, if you know that Greek story, uh, you know, of the, of the guy who's constantly pushing the ball up the hill and, and, and it's threatening to roll back on him, this is, there is a sense of truth to that. Right? There is a sense that things always go from order to chaos without our 
intentional effort, right? Without active involvement, things go from order down to chaos. And so he's gone away and things go back to chaos. And it requires constant vigilance and constant effort of reformation and restoring. Oh, if we could just clean the house once, right? If we could just clean the house once and it'd be set, right? I've got five kids. Cleaning the house, man, there's like, there's this thing that we do. We like, we clean the upstairs and we clean the downstairs and we keep all the kids on the main level. Don't go anywhere else. And then 15 minutes for people, for, before people arrive, we say, go somewhere else. And we clean the main level. And when everybody comes in, the main level's clean. We don't know what's going on upstairs or downstairs, but <laughs> pick your battles, right? Pick your battles. So here we go. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe, here they go, of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. So he re restored the tithe. And I appointed as treasurers of the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Le of the Levites, and of their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So he's appointing reliable men back to this ministry. Verse 14, this is interesting. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. You're going to see three similar prayer requests throughout this chapter. This is very unique. Nehemiah is weaving his prayer journal into this historical account. I imagine he's wondering if all of his work and all of his leadership has been a waste of time. He's wondering, has everything I've done been for nothing, right? He comes back 12 years later and his work seems to be in disarray and so he cannot look to his work to justify him. He can't look to the clean house to justify him because five minutes later it's dirty again. He can't say, was I a good governor and look to his people because his people are running around like crazy people again. Covenant breakers again. So what does he do? This is such a picture of faith and faithful commitment. He trusts God. He puts his identity and his faith back into God. And he says, God, the results are in your hands. I've done my best. I pray that you look and see my good deeds and I've tried my best. I've done what you've told me to do. But oh my goodness, if my justification is in how these people are behaving, I'm a complete failure. So he just throws himself on the mercy of God. Verse 15. <clears throat> In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Remember again the promise they promised to do in chapter 10, verse 31. He said this, quote, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or in any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We promise to keep the Sabbath. Next promise, broken. Three chapters later. Keep reading. And bringing in heads of heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the Sabbath day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So here we have the surrounding societies, they work seven days a week. See, every other God that has ever existed works seven days a week. Okay? Our God created in, in, in six days and rested on one, therefore gives to us a Sabbath that we are meant to worship and enjoy him on. Our God is a gracious God. The reason you have a weekend is because of our God. Okay? But here's what's going on. The surrounding nations, they want to trade every day a week. Right? And so they're bringing their goods in on Sunday and the Christians are like, or the, you know, the Christians here are like, oh well, it's there it's Sunday and or Saturday here, and I, I've got time. Might as well go pick up some fish or some grain. What's the big deal? Breaking the Sabbath. Verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah. He's going to the leaders. And I said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? You're meant to rest on the Sabbath, not work. You're meant to worship God, not do your normal things. Verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Remember, one of the reasons we 
got pushed off into Babylonian and Persian exile, right, and, and lived in captivity. And one of the reasons our city was destroyed in the first place and our nation decimated and our kingdoms divided and destroyed was because we started breaking the Sabbath. When, you, when worship breaks down, the rest of society begins to break down. So he's like, guys, God has just brought this reformation, this restoration, and here you go doing it again. The very thing that got us in this problem, not worshiping God on his day, you're doing it already. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after, after the Sabbath. Here's what he's doing. He's the governor. He's got the authority of the king. He can make laws. So he's like, okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to the gates and I'm making a new law. Keep these gates shut until after the Sabbath. Now, did you know up until 30, 40 years ago, we had these laws in our society. They were called blue laws. You can go and look them up. They're still, they still exist in some places. I went uh, to my grandmother's funeral in Alabama and uh, we went to buy some alcohol down there and you could not buy anything on Sunday. There was no alcohol sales taking place on Sunday. You couldn't do it. Still some blue laws down, down there. Now, blue laws... Sometimes restricted what you could buy, what you couldn't buy, what you could do, what you couldn't do, what could be open, what couldn't be open. Nehemiah basically does that. He's saying this. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. I'm a just ruler. Why are the stores open? Why are the gates open? No, no. I'm going to enact laws that say, no, we are not going to do commerce on the Lord's day. And that's exactly what he does. Okay? Verse 20. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. So they're like, okay, well, we'll just get outside the gates. I don't know if there's some kind of sneaky way they could get in there or throw stuff over the gate or what, but we're going to wait right outside the gate. And look what Nehemiah does. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? <laughs> if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Oh, come on, Nehemiah. Come on, Nehemiah. I will lay hands on you. He is the governor, right? He can, he can do this. <clears throat> this is so good. Keep going. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Sometimes, okay, here's one of the, one of the ways the law is meant to work. One of the, work, the uses of the law is to restrain evil. You can't, you know, you can make all the laws you want and evil people will still break them. But if you make just laws, good people will actually obey them. And what we see here is he makes these Sabbath laws and the people, at least right now, and he says, if you don't, I'm going to lay hands on you, right? And they say, okay, we're going to follow the law. It's not worth it. We're cool. Verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. This is a man who's serious about the worship of God, serious about the law of God. Here we, here's a second prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. <clears throat> Another prayer. Well, we remember they made three commitments in uh, chapter 10 and they've broken two of them now. They've, they're not keeping... And they're not watch, keeping watch over the house of God. They're neglect, and neglecting their tithes and that. And of course, they're profaning the Sabbath. What was the third thing they promised to do? Anybody remember? We won't marry unbelievers or let our children marry unbelievers. Well, they are batting a thousand. Verse 23. In those days, I also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, this is heartbreaking here. We need to understand what's going on. To not be able to speak the language of Judah meant to be outside of the covenant community. You could not understand the reading of God's word. You couldn't understand the promises that God had made to you. You could not understand or read the Bible. And therefore, you were not one of God's people. You were a pagan worshiping false gods. 
Now what we read here is no less than a corruption of the faith in the next generation. That God had made promises to them and to their children and to a thousand generations. And we, here we are in the first generation just probably a few years later. And guess what? The faith is no longer being passed on to that next generation. Parents have completely neglected their parental responsibilities. Husbands had married, I'm just going to say it, husbands more than likely had married hot women who didn't even speak the Hebrew language and didn't care about religion. Husbands failing to do the one thing that God's called them to do and that is spiritually lead their home. Tell them who God is. Tell them what God has done for them. Tell them how to be saved. Tell them what God promises to them and promises for them and these fathers did not do it. Derek Kidner, a scholar and a commentator, says of this passage, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Now we must understand how serious this breach of the covenant was. And once again here, before we read this next section, again, I need to remind you, Nehemiah is a governor, not a pastor. He was given that authority from the king, and the governor is given the sword to punish evildoers. The sword means that they can use physical violence or threats of violence to restrain evil. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 24. And half of their children, no, verse 25, I'm sorry. And I confronted them. Confrontation, Nehemiah's number one spiritual gift. And I, and I confronted them and cursed them. Why did he curse them? Because God said, if you break my covenant, you're cursed. So he's cursing their disobedience. He's cursing their covenant breaking. He's reminding them, you're going to be cut off and your children are going to be cut off because you're breaking the covenant. And I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made, oh gosh. Okay, now obviously here, he cursed them, he confronted them, and these men didn't just walk off into the night. Thank you, sir. May I have another? And just walk away, right? No, they, they pushed back, right? They pushed back. More than likely, who do you think you are? I want to marry who I want to marry. It's my body. I get to do what I want with it. See, they pushed back, and guess what the governing authority did? He pushed back and reminded them who they really were and who he was. I am a messenger from the king. I have been sent here by God and I have been sent here by the king and I am here to promote good and restrain evil and you are a rule breaker and a wicked man and you need a whooping. And he said, and here I am. And apparently some of them pushed back and there was some tussle. There was a little hair pulling. There was a little fight. Right? Now, th this is... You could say this is resisting arrest. You could say this is pushing back on the king. You could say this is a lot of different things. But physical violence was necessary. Nehemiah is obviously a tough dude because he wins the fight. Beats him up, makes him take their oath again. Look what he does here. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So he, he wins the fight and makes them recommit the, to the covenant. Verse 26. And listen, this is his reasoning. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. So he's the greatest king ever. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women even made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Hear that. Do this great evil and act treacherously against our God? This is no small sin. This is nothing short of spiritual adultery against God. And now we see just how deep this rabbit hole goes. Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Nehemiah's greatest enemy, Sanballat, 
has given his daughter in marriage to one of the sons of the high priest. So both Sanballat and Tobiah had schemed their way into the inner workings of Jerusalem, working to destroy it from the inside out. We can't attack it from the outside in. They push back all our attacks. Let's work to destroy it from the inside out. And what does Nehemiah do? Once he figures this out, he chases the corrupt priest out of the city. Look. Therefore, I chased him from me. Man, we need some men like this in our society. Therefore, I chased him from me. A man with a backbone who's willing to do what's right. See, a leader's job is not to keep everyone happy. Paul tells the the pastors in Acts chapter 20, 17 through 31, that they need to be on guard, and this is so interesting, in the early church, he says, you need to be on guard for wolves in sheep's clothing that will arise from inside of their churches. That they're gonna arise from inside of your churches, they're gonna be twist, uh, teaching twisted things to turn many astray from inside your own midst. See, a godly pastor and a godly leader must care for the sheep and one of the ways he must care for the sheep is by driving away the wolves like Nehemiah did with this corrupt priest here. You can't let a wolf stay in your church or they will destroy other sheep. They will bring other sheep away after them and destroy their faith. So Nehemiah acts quickly. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Strong language from Nehemiah. Verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. This is what he says. All right, God, it seems like my work is over. I've rebuilt the ruins. I've restored. I've created the environment for the right worship of God. I've brought restoration where I can. This has been my life's work. And now he's signing off, and he signs off with a prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. That's how the book ends. See, three times in this final chapter, Nehemiah prays to God and asks him to remember him. Why is he doing this? Well, I think there's at least, at least three reasons. One, he wanted to hear God's fatherly approval. Right? Don't we all want to hear that? He wanted to know, God, are you pleased with what I've done? Right? This is, the one, this is one of the scenarios where the dad has left the room and things are in chaos, right? And one of, the, one of the children have entered the room and they put everything in order and then the dad walks back in and Nehemiah is standing there in the room and the room is clean and Nehemiah is waiting to hear, well done, well done, right? If you've got kids that have ever, ever spontaneously decided to clean their room, you know this. Hey dad, want to see my room? Right? What are they wanting to hear? Good job, son. It looks great. Right? I'm proud of you. Nehemiah is looking for that attaboy, it seems. Secondly, as Nehemiah finishes this chapter of his life, he's wanting to know, was I a failure? He's wondering, did I really accomplish anything? The people were covenant breakers when I showed up. And here they are 12 years later doing the same thing. Did I just rewind the same movie and push play and here we are? Have I done anything? Was this all a waste of time? Was I a failure? Now listen, from our perspective, thousands of years later, we can say, no, Nehemiah, you were the man. Nehemiah, you did great. You kept the faith. You confessed your own sin and led the people to repent and confess their sins. You restructured and reordered society in the ways that you were commanded to do. You confronted them, called them to repentance, and you told them to bear fruit in keeping with the repentance. You were a faithful leader. Nehemiah, I love you, bro. Thank you for what you've done. I'm going to give him some knuckles when I see him in heaven. 
answer the question for him. Actually, he already knows. God answered these questions for him. The final reason why Nehemiah prays to God to remember him and his work is because he looks around and realizes though his work is over, though his time on earth is over, the work is not over. The people are still sinning. They're still sinners. So Nehemiah's looking around and going, man, on my watch, we've done some good things. God, look at that. But who's coming next? Who's filling in for me? Who's taking over this role and going to be the next prophet, priest, or king who's going to work to reform and constantly reform God's people and God's place? Who's going to come and teach them God's ways? Who will be the next prophet to call them to repentance? Will there ever be a covenant keeper to come and do what Nehemiah or no one else could do? Could anyone turn these wayward sinners into covenant-keeping saints? Well, Nehemiah is the last historical book in the Old Testament. And it leaves us longing for the one. It leaves us longing for what the Old Testament calls the Messiah, that prophet, priest, or king who would come and actually save his people from their sins and set up the kingdom that will have no end where sin and sorrow will no longer grow. The king that will come, that will cancel the pattern, that will stop the declension, to stop the sinning. This is scripture's last record of history until John the Baptist shows up. And John the Baptist is this wild man prophet with crazy camel looking hair, clothes, and a Dr. Alex diet. And... <laughs> something real close and he's in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and then this guy Jesus comes out to be baptized by him even though Jesus had never sinned and when Jesus gets baptized he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and an audible voice came from heaven that said you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus gets the blessing Nehemiah is looking for before Jesus even begins his ministry. God says, I see you, Jesus, and I love you. Jesus, you please me. Son, I love you, I'm your father. See, Jesus was God. He was the second member of the triune God. He had eternally been with God as the son forever. And so the father and the Holy Spirit had eternally been happy with Jesus. So when Jesus comes to this earth, he lives a perfect covenant-keeping life. What all the people of Israel and Jerusalem failed to do, Jesus accomplished. What Nehemiah failed to do, Jesus accomplished. And the Father and the Son all show up at his baptism. The Spirit lands on him and the Father speaks lovingly to him. But then what happens? We expect a coronation ceremony right here. We expect a throne, right? And we expect everybody to bow down at his knees. And we expect a perfect life from then forward where sin and sorrow no longer grow. But Jesus does something completely out of our thinking, what we would never imagine he does. See, the story isn't, it doesn't end. Jesus comes and they lived happily ever after. Jesus comes and he gets up at his baptism and he hears the Father's approval and he walks out into temptation, into the desert where he's tempted by Satan. Then Jesus gets treated far worse than Nehemiah was treated by Sanballat and Tobiah. He was tempted by Satan, betrayed by his disciples, condemned by Jewish religious leaders, and brutally beaten and crucified by the political leaders. Where Nehemiah was a just leader, the political leaders of Jesus' day were unjust. Jesus was treated worse than, he, than Nehemiah treated Tobiah and Sanballat. 
Jesus was beaten. Jesus' beard was pulled from him. Jesus was chased from the city. In fact, he had to carry a cross from the city to the Mount of Golgotha, the Mount of the Skull. And what Scripture tells us is that Jesus did that to turn sinners into saints. He took our place on the cross so that we could take his name upon our hearts. And what does it mean to take his name? It means the way that the Father looked at Jesus. When Jesus' name is upon your heart, that's the way the Father looks at you now. We don't have to pray the prayer of Nehemiah. Oh God, do you see me? Oh God, will you hear? Oh God, will you listen? We know God listens. We know God is for us. We know God loves us because the name of Jesus is on our heart. See, Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah who is building a city without stain, without wrinkle, without sin, without injustice. He's building the perfect city and he's filling it. He's taking imperfect people, changing them into saints and filling this city with his people. He's building a city that will renew and restore the whole world and that's what we're a part of. A sacred city. Jesus is building a sacred city. Now, if you've never embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you go from a sinner to a saint. That's it. You go from a sinner to a saint and then you live the rest of your life learning how to live as a saint. But if you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, we get to come together and we get to eat of the Lord's Supper this morning and we get to remember today what it took to make us into saints. It didn't take a lot of effort on our part. It didn't take a lot of commitment and covenant keeping and obedience on our part. It took the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And so, as we come Christian this morning, we are eating this covenant meal together. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ that we eat together as we are waiting for God to bring that sacred city to earth. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for all the work you've done in this service already. And now I thank you for being present with us here in this meal. Would you communicate yourself to us through the eating and through the drinking, through your body and through your blood? Would we be remembered? Would we remember the new covenant you make with us that you are our God and we are your people and this is not dependent upon our work but upon the work of Christ. We eat this and worship to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.